This episode is supported by Active Skin Repair. Active Skin Repair is a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. I just randomly... Vinny was having a toe skin irritation issue and he ended up having this like skin that was really irritating him and it was getting kind of like icky and you know like when kids start to get like little scabs and scratches and then they want to pick at it and it was getting worse and so active skin repair showed up on my doorstep as a result of the sponsorship and I got to put it to use immediately and I got the ointment formula or the like ointment formulation and then also the spray and the spray was perfect so Vinny does not like ointmenty creamy lotiony things on his body but I was able to get out the spray literally took it out of the packaging the day it arrived put it on his toe before he went to bed and the next morning he was like mom my toe's all better. It was literally like this super amazing cure that helped his toes so quickly. So you can use active skin repair on a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, other types of skin damage. It's totally safe, non-toxic, suitable on all types of skin, even parts of the body where you might have rosacea or eczema or have acne prone skin. This is also safe for the youngest members of your family up to the oldest. So now you have one simple solution for your family's skin health needs. With over 500 thousand happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews and super safe and clean ingredients active skin repair is something that you want to have on hand for your family so to get your own active skin repair go to activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and get 20 percent off your order when you use the code shameless that's activeskinrepair.com use the code shameless for 20 percent off your order activeskinrepair.com code shameless This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 827 with Nefertiti Austin. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 827. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community. So be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Author and memoirist Nefertiti Austin writes about the erasure of diverse voices in motherhood in the number one Amazon bestseller, Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America. Nefertiti's work around this topic has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, The Nation, Romper, Adoptive Families Magazine, Parents Magazine, She Media, and countless other outlets. She has appeared on numerous podcasts and radio programs, including The Today Show and multiple NPR outlets. Lately, she's writing about raising her neurologically diverse daughter and jokes that adolescence is no match for menopause which I know a lot of our listeners can appreciate, both of those. Nefertiti considers herself an accidental journalist as her goal was to write novels and adopt a baby. Instead, her training, expertise, and Mommy Jones coupled with degrees in U.S. history and African-American studies from UCLA led her to elevate Black women, mothers specifically, in her work. She's a former certified PS MAP trainer, where she co-led classes for participants wanting to attain a license to foster and or adopt children from the foster care system. An alumna of the Breadloaf Writers Conference and VONA, her first two novels, Eternity and Abandon, 
helped usher in the black romance genre in the mid-1990s. So all this is to say she's kind of a big deal. <laughs> she's the proud adoptive mother of two children and two shipus. Their dog's names, I'm dying. Monsignor Lafayette and Siddhartha, which are maybe the two best pet names ever. <laughs> and all of them live in Los Angeles, California. So Nefertiti, her work was brought to my attention. She was brought to my attention via a, I think it was a Facebook post by our mutual friend connection and past two-time guest of the Shameless Mom Academy, Debbie Reber, whose work I love. Debbie Reber is the author of Differently Wired, and she also has a podcast, Tilt Parenting, about differently wired children. And when I was seeing the conversation between the two of them on Facebook, I was like, oh, I would love for Nefertiti to come be a guest on the show. And so I asked Debbie for a little intro and she said yes. And now here we are. I'm so, so honored to have Nefertiti here. So listen in to hear Nefertiti, or Nef as she goes by, share what Black adoption looks like compared to typical white adoption, her intentional journey of building her family as a single adoptive mom, how race and gender factor into parenting neurologically diverse children, how having a neurologically diverse child changed her life in ways she didn't see coming, how she has had to explore her own triggers when it comes to her daughter's behaviors. Ooh, I can relate to that. (laughs) How the murder of Trayvon Martin became a wake-up call for her responsibility of raising a Black son, what she wants white parents to know about how Black parents or parents of Black children parent from a place of fear, and what visible allyship feels like for Black parents and children and how white parents can be more assertive, if not aggressive, in their allyship. This is a tremendously valuable conversation. I'm so grateful that Neff decided to take the time with us for this interview, for this conversation. I'm grateful for her work. She's an incredible writer. Her book is absolutely amazing. So after listening to this interview, or right now, you can go push pause and make sure you go either get the audio, which is how I read the book on the audiobook, or go get yourself a hard copy. You can go wherever you get books on Amazon. It's all linked up in the show notes. If you go do a search for Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America, you can get access to her book, pretty much immediately. So with all that, please join me in welcoming Nefertiti Austin to the Shameless Mom Academy. Nefertiti, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Or we have to give a little shout out to Debbie Reber because we connected, I think it was a post on Facebook that she put up and she's just so awesome. She's been on a guest on the show twice and I recommend her book to everyone. She's the author of Differently Wired. And she also hosts the Tilt Parenting podcast, which I know a lot of our listeners listen to. So thank you, Debbie, for making this happen. We appreciate you. Thanks, Debbie. (laughs) And now we'll focus on our guests. We'll spotlight you, Nefertiti. So tell us a little bit about the dynamics of your personal and professional life beyond your bio and what you're excited about right now in this season. I think currently what I am excited about is my book proposal on raising a neurologically diverse child is still out in the world. So as a writer, that's always a win, like no news is good news. And hopefully that rolls into good news very soon. And I am also excited that, you know, the year seems to have righted itself and big sort of takeover for me in my life the last few weeks has been fifth grade. My daughter is in fifth grade and I've just learned so much through her journey and working with teachers and working in partnership and being able to really discover triggers I didn't realize that I had. So it's been a a growth, but like my daughter was sent here to grow me up even further. And so that's a good thing. 
And otherwise, I spend a lot of time driving children around. As we touched on before we hit record, driving children all the places. And we were talking about listening to audio, but like audiobooks become such a great new habit in all that carpool time. That's right. Who knew? Yes, I'm a huge fan. So you have a fifth grade daughter. I have a fifth grade son. And then you have a son as well, right? 16, yes. And 11, 16. Okay. I I knew he was older, but I wasn't quite sure the age. So 16. And what grade did you say? He's in the 11th grade. Okay. And we have lots and lots of conversations about college and scholarships and just weekly grades. And did you turn that assignment in? And did you respond to your teacher's email? (laughs) Big, big things are happening in your household. I'm very nervous about that season of of life. I'm in total disbelief that we'll actually get there, but everyone keeps telling me that it's inevitable. (laughs) It's coming. It's coming. And you'll be fine. Thank you. Thank you. So you have a book already written that's out there, but not yet in production. I'm not sure if I'm using the right words around this. The proposal process is basically your your idea. So my idea is out in the world. And once it finds a home, then I'll work with an editor and it will be turned into a book. So my book that's currently out is Motherhood to White. So that came out in September of 2019. Got it. And that's what I was going to circle us back to. So sending you all the luck and love as you navigate this second book journey. I know from friends who are writers that this is all a long journey. But also, I definitely we're going to dig into Motherhood So White, a race, a memoir of race, gender and parenting in America. And this is where I believe you were in conversation with Debbie Reber on social media. And I was like, immediately thinking, oh, 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 she needs to come on my show. (laughs) And So thank you for saying yes. These are conversations that we really want to be having on the Shameless Mom Academy. And our audience recognizes the importance of having these kinds of conversations around race around we're also going to be digging into neurodivergence today, but also just conversations around recognizing how we all coexist in spaces together and how we can all hold space for one another. And also, especially with our kids, how we can all take care of one another, which I think is so, so critical in mothering. And also, I think can create ease for everyone in mothering if we're aware that we're all doing that. Absolutely. We're all doing the same job. There are nuances, but we're all doing the same job. Same goal. Yeah. 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 So let's dig into the beginning here. And I want to talk about race and adoption and as much of your stories you want to share, why is it important that narratives around Black people and adoption be told? And we've actually had multiple adoptive white families on the show. So I'm excited to hear your perspective on this. Oh, thanks for that question. I think that's the first time I've been asked that. So it's important that everyone know that Black people do adopt because there's still a prevailing myth that we don't adopt. And largely it's because our adoption looks a little different. I call it Black adoption where within a family, grandparents, you know, great aunts or someone makes a decision that the children, grandkids, nieces and nephews, cousins, you know, might even be like the neighbor's kids or the church kids need a home. And the birth parents, for whatever reason, they're not up for it. They can't do it. And we will not leave the kids behind. And that means that we skip social workers and we skip the court system because it's an internal decision that's made and everyone abides by that decision. So that was certainly my experience. My brother and I were raised by our maternal grandparents and everyone on both sides of the family, everyone at school, everyone in the world knew that whatever our grandparents said, like that was it. They were in charge of us. They were our parents. So that's Mm -hmm. one way that we adopt. And then the other way that we adopt is we adopt internationally and we adopt 
locally. Many of us go through the foster care system, which was ultimately the choice that I made. And I believe if more people recognize that Black people configure their families in very much the same ways as white people using a surrogate or however we come to mothering or being a parent, we would get more support. The children would get more support. And I believe that the mythology around the children who are in foster care, it's, it's pretty negative who these kids are, who they will be. I think it would stop a lot of the negativity around the children because the majority of the mature, of children in foster care are black, despite the fact that we are a minority in this country. I live in Los Angeles, definitely a minority in Los Angeles. Yeah. Thank you for that. And that perspective. I think that that is a really important perspective for us to be able to hold. And I'm thinking back to different stories and scenarios around when I was growing up and also friends from college. And I can absolutely see this, what you're saying around black adoption looking different than typical white adoption. And it's interesting how, and I think incredible how as a community, you really do show up for one another's children. And I think there's a culture about that that is really, really special and unique to Black culture and families and communities. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's something that definitely predates our coming to America, just being a very communal people and then being enslaved for 400 plus years and so much uncertainty around, you know, will mom get to stay? Will dad get to stay? Will uncle so-and-so get to stay? And so, so many children abandoned, not because the parents were like, I don't want you, but abandoned due to circumstances because they didn't own themselves and they didn't have that type of power. Somebody had to step in and take care of those children. So that is just something that we do is something that we have done. And it's interesting. I think like in the seventies, it came up a little bit some again in the nineties. And then within the last few years, they're called grand families. And I've been reading about grand families. And so the grand families would be grandparents who are raising, you know, that next generation, they, they retired, they didn't expect to have to do that. And what's interesting is the support that the grand families are getting that wasn't around when I was a child, but it's around now due to the proliferation of pills. And you, once the pills hit the suburbs and, and people are dying on accident, you know, fentanyl overdose, things like that, it's left a lot of families, i.e. white families, to raise grandchildren. And so now, oh, let's celebrate grand families mm. and support them because children cost money. You have to take care of them. Yeah. And you need time and energy to do so. And I want to recap what you just said to make sure that I'm understanding correctly and make sure our audience understands that it's only because this started affecting white people more broadly that this culturally became more widely accepted with in terms of the label that you or the title you just used grand families. It's yeah. been happening forever in black communities, yes. not really culturally noticed or resourced. And now that so many white and I shouldn't be laughing, but I'm just like rolling my eyes like, oh, of course, now that white people are having these struggles on such a grand scale. Now, of course, society is going to be like, oh, hmm, maybe we should put some resources around that. Maybe we should build better systems and structures. Absolutely. And and not shame families who, you know, again, their children are not asked to be born, find themselves in circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so we can uplift the families. I'm grateful to anyone who can take care of the kids, you know, yeah. regardless of skin color. 
but it's mm-hmm. always very curious when the resources appear. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. Can you talk a little bit about your children and what building your family looked like? Because it's every family, and I've talked about this a lot because we went through a lot of infertility stuff. Every family gets to be built in its own unique way. And sometimes when we look at families, we make a lot of assumptions about like, oh, it must've just happened this way. And that's often not the case. It wasn't the case for our family. And I know it wasn't the case for yours. So can you share a bit about that? Definitely. My children are black. So we are a same race adoptive family. And to look at the three of us together, I don't think anyone ever assumes that my kids are adopted. So that's definitely a compliment. And we don't feel like we don't go through the world like we're an adoptive family. We are a family. Mm-hmm. And I was very intentional about how I created my family. Now, my daughter was a surprise. So I wasn't expecting to adopt a second child, but I was very intentional about adopting my son. I thought it was very important. It was, it's like my community service, my give back to my grandparents who raised my brother and I, and also really looking ahead, like, what could I do for someone else? And I felt like there's all this negativity around Black men And the guys I grew up with are wonderful husbands and fathers and just great citizens. And we need more of that. And I set out to, again, disrupt a myth, disrupt a narrative around Black boys and knowing that Black boys are least likely to adopt. So again, it was like, but why? They need the same love the same affection, the same support, the same education. And if they could have all of these things, they'll be fine. And typically that's the case. So that's really how that came about. And my best friend is adopted and she became an adoption social worker. So it was around, it was like in the air. And I'd hear all these stories about these children. And I taught kindergarten and first grade for like 10 minutes. That's as long as I could take it. <laughs> for 10 minutes, I thought, I was like, oh, 10 years. Oh, <laughs> nope, 10 minutes. <laughs> about 10 minutes. That was about it. And a third of my class were foster kids. And I that was a brand new experience for me. And I didn't realize how impacted I was by that. I felt for the children. I had a heart for it, a calling, because I do think adoption is a calling. And I answered the call. And how old was your son? when He was six months, and he's 16. And then when he was in kindergarten, I think he started asking for a baby. Huh? A what? <laughs> a puppy. We have two of those. No, a baby. <laughs> and specifically, a baby girl. What? Are you trying to kill me? <laughs> and I thought I didn't want him to be an only child. I wasn't married or seeing anyone of significance at the time. And I thought, okay, I will adopt another little boy because I'm a boy mom. I got this. I've got a tribe, a village around me, all boys. We'll just add one more boy into the fray. And it ended up being a little girl who turned out to be my son's half-sister. So there's no way I could leave her behind. Oh, my gosh. And she fit right on in with all the boys. And she was 10 months old when she came to live with us. And she is 10, one on 11. Wow. What a great journey. This episode is supported by Mysteries About True Histories, a podcast for your kiddos. So from the creators of the hit podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild comes the adventurous world of mysteries about true histories, affectionately known as math. 
Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs, making learning cool. This podcast is perfect for ages six and up, and new episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. I love a show where, as a parent, you're like, hey, let's listen or watch this or whatever, and your kids are thinking they're like getting extra device time or what have you, and you're like, they're learning right now. So it feels like such a big win. So I want you to go check out Mysteries About True Histories wherever you listen to podcasts. You can tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you're listening to this podcast. So go check out Mysteries About True Histories to listen in and have some fun with your kid while they learn today. This episode is supported by a podcast I want to share with you called Understood Explains. So this show is about navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences, which can be so confusing. And so every uh, season of the show is around a different theme. So there's a season on special education, there's a season on ADHD diagnosis for adults, and the current season is all about IEPs. I love this podcast because the episodes are 10 to 15 minutes long. So if you are short on time or short on focus, you can take this content in super quickly, easily. It's very digestible. And the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Utube. So Juliana talks all about how to navigate educational plans, IEPs. She talks about the differences between IEPs and 504 plans. She really breaks things down in a really clear and simple way so that you have some of those questions that you might be thinking around, like, does this pertain to my child? Is this something I need to be looking into? Like, where do we go from here? Where do I go if I have questions? Juliana has you covered. She explains so many different things and so many different little pieces and nuance of IEPs and special education and different things on Understood Explains. So I want you to go check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can go listen to Understood Explains. Just go into your podcast app, do a search for Understood Explains, and it will pop right up. Click on it, pick your episode, and get the answers that you've been looking for and the support that you need around different learning differences and differences in school. And I want to just clarify, you also went into this journey of building a family, this intentional journey of building a family as a single mom as well. Yes, I was. Because that's not a light decision. So I want to make sure that we also highlight that. You're right. You're right. Thank you for that. I was single. Yeah, I wanted to. I mean, I wanted to get married. And I used to go to the grocery store and buy the nod, pick out wedding dresses and all kind of cool stuff, all the music, the program, the whole bit. And when I was finally ready to become a parent, I wasn't seeing anyone. And that had nothing to do with what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I just move forward with what I wanted. What I wanted was to adopt a black boy from the foster care system. And that's what I did. Oh my gosh. I'm like over here championing your ability to make a decision and make a decision that's just for you. That's for me. (laughs) Super independent decision. I love it so much. And I appreciate that. Can you talk a little bit about how does race and gender factor into parenting neurologically diverse children? So you are the book that you're writing is around raising neurodiverse children, the new book. I'm making an assumption. And also, I know a little bit behind the scenes to know that this is connected to your own personal stories. So can you make connect some of those dots for us around that work? And then also talk about race and gender factoring in. Sure. My daughter has ADHD. And found that out when she was in, I guess, kindergarten, maybe. I thought she was just spirited. I just thought, okay, you know what? She's going to grow up and be president and run the world and, you know, strong-willed. 
fearless. I mean, the whole bit. I was like, my kind of girl. And kindergarten starts and she can't sit still and she's turning cartwheels and she's running out the room and, and she's having to be redirected like just an incredible amount of times ago get her assessed. And then ultimately, that was the diagnosis, you know, which was fine. But it has really set me on a journey I definitely did not expect to go on, which in hindsight is probably naive, because maybe 30% of the kids in foster care will present with some type of neurodiversity, because my son didn't, I just thought, oh, okay, well, I guess I lucked out. And so I was not prepared, but I got prepared very quickly. And it's been quite a journey just titrating meds, behavior modification, and having to tell her story over and over every single school year, having to tell mm, yeah. the different entities that support her, be it a dance or if she's on a team, having to alert people like, hey, hey, you know, some of the behavior, it's, it's not intentional. Yeah, It's just her brain and, and we're working on it. We're trying to do this. And race definitely factors in the sense that in our case, in our environment, we were great because my son had attended the same school. So we were a known entity, a known family. But there are so many stories and it's easy to find how children of color, black and brown children are not given the benefit of the doubt. It isn't, oh, you know what, maybe something's going on with them. It is this child is a behavior problem. This child will be suspended. This child will have to sit out. Well, if they're sitting out, then they're not getting their lesson. So you pile all these things on top of the kids and then wonder why they're resistant to things or wonder why they are behind. Mm -hmm. And that has everything to do with racism. And with regard to gender, often ADHD is missed in girls because the stereotype is that girls are dreamy and they're just a space cadet and they're not bothering anybody and they're so sweet and quiet. And I'm so grateful that my daughter presented like a boy because mm -hmm. I absolutely would have missed it. Yeah. That, you know, I'm sure at some point I would have caught it, but because of the stereotype, again, you know, girls are all butterflies and rainbows and, you know, boys are all rambunctions. It does girls a disservice. And I've read so many articles written by women, adult women who said, oh, when I was a kid, people thought I was just a space cadet or I struggled so hard in school. And I had such a hard time because I didn't know what was wrong with me. I thought I was dumb and all these negative things that happened. And it's like, wow, all of that could have been alleviated if practitioners, teachers and things knew not to genderize all right. Yeah, that's where genderize neurodiversity. Yeah. I hear you that and I agree that when something is really, really visible, then it gets attention. <laughs> and that can be a blessing because yeah, you're absolutely right that a lot of things look different than they are. And I'm also hearing you when you say that having to tell your daughter's story over and over again. My son has a number of friends who have diagnoses around ADHD, anxiety that are pretty significantly impactful in their school life and their sports life. And I've watched those parents have to think through like every new thing you sign your kid up for, you're like, okay, do I like let them kind of start down this road and like see how it goes? Or do I say something right off the bat? Or do I like, how much do I get involved? And it's been really interesting to watch that struggle in parents and that it's constant. Yeah, it's every single year. It is constant. And as a parent, you don't want people to think I'm making excuses. Yeah. And as a parent, 
you get worried about asking for too many accommodations and some won't ask at all or your kids yeah. need meds. I had a friend last year who didn't want the school to know that her daughter took medicine. And I'm mm -hmm. like, but she needs it. And she yeah. can take it at school with the 50 other children who are taking it. But she was so worried. There's still so much shame around it. So we're not sharing. Mm -hmm. We should share just to help each other out. And it's a lot. And it is sometimes it's day to day. Yeah. How has raising a neurologically diverse child changed your life? Well, I'm sure that I am far more on top of my game than I would have been otherwise. She has really forced me to stretch and do my own homework and do my own research on my own triggers. Yeah. And you so, mentioned triggers. I'm interrupting you, but you mentioned triggers before. So if you could just talk about that after you finish what you were going to say. Right. Well, I can just say the triggers. Okay. The disrespect. And mm. that's not, you know, just a black thing or what have you, but certainly in the black community, you do not disrespect for adults at all. Yeah. A teacher, not your mom, no one. And having to learn not to take things personally, that's been yeah. really, really hard. And I, I, so I've had to grow my patience and really grow my level of empathy for her because I am neurotypical. I don't know what she's going through. I don't know what it feels like. So I have to hold space for her a lot of times and really just be like, I'm going to sit here with you because I don't know what else to do, or I'm gonna hug you because that's all that I can think to do in this particular moment. So I wasn't raised in this super affectionate household, but I've got this little girl who's very, very affectionate. And of course, when I want to throttle her, we're in an embrace just to co-regulate with her and also to calm myself down. <laughs> <laughs> I've certainly become far more affectionate. I think more empathetic. And I think my discernment in terms of a person's motivations has expanded. I'm super optimistic. I always believe class is is half full always. And she has really taught me, you know, hey, everything's not about you. And also, someone may say, okay, well, I'm upset about this, but it might be something else. So just really just to kind of wait, let it roll off. Yeah, keep it pushing. I just was recording an episode this morning, just a solo episode, but I was talking about things that I'm noticing to be more true in this season of life. And one of them was in parenting an 11 year old and my specific 11 year old recognizing the space I've had to make for patience and having conversations that just go round and round and round and round. <laughs> and it's so I'm like, can we just, here's the problem. Here's a three point solution. And now we're done and goodbye. Like it could, this could be a three minute thing. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, it's like two hours of talking and then let's take the dog for a walk and keep talking about it. And then let's sit on the couch and start to do something on our individual devices, but then come back and talk about it more. <laughs> yes. It's been a huge lesson and it's been really hard. And I'm recognizing, and to your point around, like, I guess we just have to hug more now. I'm like, oh, this is like the work I have to do right now. And it's, it requires a lot of soul searching and an extreme amount of like self-awareness recognizing this is not what I thought parenting an 11 year old would be like. And also this is exactly what my kids specifically needs right now. So I guess this is what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. Every child is different. And, you know, sometimes like the other day, our daughter epic meltdown. I'm just trying to figure out like, what is going on? Oh, she's having a rebound from the medication. 
crap. Oh, she took her lunch and she put it in a Ziploc bag and she hid it in the freezer. Well, I didn't know that for hours. So it's 7.30. She's operating on no food since breakfast. Well, Mm. of course she would have an epidemic. So now I'm going to my son because he's looking at her sideways as well. Like, listen, this is what's happening with your sister, you know. Da, 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 da. And then go to my daughter. This is what's happening to you. You've got to be aware of your body, you know, so on and so forth. And definitely with him, there have been times where he feels like you let her get away with stuff. Well, so yeah. Um, <laughs> and then her situation is different from yours. So you can't yeah. compare yourself to her. So it's it's raising two kids very differently. And that takes yeah. lots of energy. And like like you said, no clue. Totally <laughs> didn't expect that any of it would be this hard because it's hard. Parenting's hard. Mm-hmm. It's fun, but it's hard. Yeah. And hard in ways where you were like, I thought it was going to be hard in this one way, but now <laughs> it's hard in this other way. Like I was mentally prepared for this, but not that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. All of that. I want to also spend some time talking about raising a black son in climate of anti-blackness the layers in which you get to show up as a parent for two children with very different, but really significant needs is commendable because this is the work that you are doing right now, but we'll continue to have to do, but it's also not the work you asked for. So I want to acknowledge that there's a lot, a lot, a lot to these really significant layers. Can you talk about what you want other moms to know around the way that your son navigates the world? Totally didn't expect that. And what tipped my hat was the murder of Trayvon Martin. It was a moment where I like got it like, oh, wow, my parenting journey is going to look different than my friends, my white friends parenting journey and understanding that I'd have to start a conversation about race and gender and our place in the world and microaggressions and bias and prejudice and all of these things that you shouldn't have to have with a five-year-old. Yeah, I felt compelled to start there because that's where we were. And I needed him to understand early for his emotional safety that despite the fact that I love you and think that you are, you know, the cat's meow, there are people who will see you and disagree and they would treat you accordingly. And so now I've got a 16, soon to be 17-year-old. He's already one, mm-hmm. And I mean, he looks like a little kid to me, but, you know, when we're out in the world, he looks like a man. Yeah. And people don't know that you're honor student and that you're in an engineering pathway and you play lacrosse. They can't look at you and tell those things about who you are as a person. They look at you and they see a threat. And the violence against Black bodies, it is real and it is painful. It is stressful. And at 16, he's wanting to go out and to hang out. And I allow him to do so because he shouldn't have to hide in the house just because there's some crazies with a police badge or a vigilante, you know, walking the streets of a neighborhood. But it's very stressful. And what white moms in particular need to know is that for every black mother that you see, you know, on the news crying about the loss of her child, like, that's her child. And yeah. as a mom, you should be able to stand in her shoes and be able to feel like, wow, what if that were my son? Or what if mm-hmm. that were my daughter? And help us move that conversation forward and help us to pass legislation that will protect us so that the Zimmermans of the world don't go free. I mean, that's just insane that yeah. these things continue to happen. 
I think that, in fact, I also learned where black moms fit on the racial totem pole. We're like at the bottom. Again, crazy, given the relationship between white people and black women in this country and all of the babies we nursed and when we couldn't even take care of our own kids because we were taking care of someone else's kids. Like we have so much in common Mm-hmm. And even getting Motherhood So White published was an ordeal. Getting an agent was an ordeal because the gatekeepers are white women. And over 60 of them said no. And there were some who said, wow, this is so great and it's important, but I can't sell it because white women won't buy it, which is terrible. Why wouldn't you buy it? I read your books. Yeah. This episode is supported by AquaTrue. Having clean, safe water is the last thing you want to worry about. But unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four, yes, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants in their tap water. So that's why you got to check out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers have a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process. And their countertop purifiers, which is what we have, take no installation or plumbing, and they remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and they're specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, which can lead to potentially adverse health effects like cancer, endocrine system disruption, and liver toxicity, which is part of what makes AquaTrue so special, unique, and important in terms of how they are able to filter water. They also have water purifiers to fit every type of home. So like the installation-free countertop purifier that we have at our house to higher capacity under sink options. They even have Wi-Fi connected purifiers and mineral boost options. So I'm so excited about our new AquaTrue. And here's the thing. I swear it's like a gentle reminder to actually drink more water every time you walk into your kitchen. So we are drinking more water now and also more clean water. So more water that is more clean. It feels like a double win. I'm feeling pretty impressed with us. I feel like sink water, tap water becomes invisible at a certain point. And when I see the purifier on my counter, it's like many time a day reminder to like, keep drinking, keep drinking. So I want you to check out AquaTrue for yourself and for your family. AquaTrue comes with a 30 day money back guarantee and that makes it a great gift as well. Today, my listeners, can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS, S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S, AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff.
I want to touch on the book thing for a second and then mm-hmm. go back. But do you know Rebecca Baruki, Row House Pub Publications? So she was working for Hay House okay. um, in publishing and started to see, and she's talked about this publicly, so it's not like a big secret, but she started to see like just the kinds of books that they were accepting, publishing, the ones that they weren't. She's someone who's been in the activist, racial activist space for a long time. And and she's a black biracial woman. And she finally was like, I I can't do this anymore. She started her own publication company and primarily publishes books that are by women of color for people of color and some incredible authors on her within her publication house and incredible books. But was so interesting in watching her talk about this. And this was in, I believe, like late 2020, early 2021, when she was talking about this. So, you know, we all remember what the world was like at that time post the murder of George Floyd. And it was so fascinating to watch her talk about this and really reinforces everything that you just said that like, sure, this is a really great book. It's a really important book. But, you know, white women aren't here to read it. So we're not gonna be able to sell it. So that's going to be a no for us. And I think that like, thank you for keeping going. First of all, it's so important that stories like yours get shared and that it's so important that white women, white parents, white people are reading these stories. And for everyone listening, I know so many who listen to this podcast are listening to everyone's stories. We're all we're looking for stories that are different than our own. But wherever you can invite other people around you in your circles to listen to other stories, do so. And you can do that through gifting books and you can do that through recommending audiobooks and you can do that in bringing in speakers to your kids' school. And like there's just so many ways that we can do this that's that are so important and I think it's sometimes we opt for more passive ways to be involved. I want to invite folks who are listening to be really thoughtful and conscientious in terms of how they want to demonstrate allyship. I also want to address, and if you want to respond to any of that, you can, but I also wanted to go back and talk about parenting from a place of fear, which is really different than how white parents have to parent. And so anything in what I just said, if you want to take it from there and I'll, I'll follow your lead. Absolutely. Well, first, thank you for having me on your podcast. So during the pandemic, the twin pandemic between COVID and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery's murders, I got a lot of solicitations to be on podcasts. I got paid to speak at events. It was amazing because my book had only been out, Motherhood So White had only been out, I think about six or seven months. And I was supposed to go to a couple of things. And of course, the world shut down. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, what's going to happen? So it ultimately was a blessing for writers of color who had books out because people actively searched for us. And then all of the fatigue set set in, white people started to feel like, oh, okay, well, you know, it's over now and I'm tired of talking about it and I don't know what to do and we're just gonna move on. And so then that felt like, oh, so much of this was performative. You know, your interest in me mm-hmm. wasn't sincere. It wasn't legit. So mm-hmm. thank you in 2023 having me on your podcast because what it means is that my book is still doing the work and that mm-hmm. there are people like yourself who are still doing the work of spreading diverse narratives. So thank you. Now, back to parenting from a space of fear. That was weird. I wasn't, I swear, I thought, oh my God, I got my little boy and... He is all into astronomy and he's three years old and he can see all the planets and all these things and he can read. Oh my God, this is fabulous. And now I've got this new layer in my life, this new thing, fear, which I'm not a scary person. And that's been something really hard to adjust to, but it is the norm. 
And it is necessary for those of us who are raising Black children. For white people who adopt or they have biracial children, when your kids are outside of your white privilege at school, on the, you know, at the park or just somewhere out in the world, and if they're Black presenting, you have the same exact fears that I do. Will someone follow them through CVS because they're doing what all kids do, hanging out in the toy aisle? Will you tell your child, as I've told my, don't touch anything because I know that you may be accused of stealing when all you're doing is holding it and touching it because you're a little kid and you're curious. That's what you're supposed to be doing. I don't want any mess. And I don't want you to get into trouble behind someone else's prejudices, someone's biases about who you are just based upon how you look. And I know I, I was telling a story to someone recently, our neighborhood is gentrifying and I had written an article about that and our neighbors are white and it's a whole bunch of them. And during COVID, the kids were all outside playing, they're playing hide and seek and kick the can and having a grand old time. So one day in particular, looking at the kids and the white girls are running up and down the street, hiding on the side of houses, having a great time. Our boys are doing the same thing. So my friend and I were standing there looking at the kids like, do we tell the boys to come on? Do we tell the boys, oh, you can't hide on the side of the house. You can't go into those backyards. We left them alone and we let them have their fun. But to have to stop yeah. and even consider that when I was a kid, I was running through the neighborhood, didn't think anything of it. But the fact that we even thought about it is just it's so unfair that... Mm -hmm. You know, and if we had said, hey, guys, you know, come on, you know, you all can't do that. Like, that's so unfair to a person's childhood to rob them of just a game of hide and seek. Yeah. Every single decision, like pre-decisions, like pre that, what you just, that is story you just told is like a pre-decision. Yes. <laughs> and it's not like before you open the front door, you're thinking, okay, what do I need to do about XYZ? You're like, oh, wait, I didn't tell them before they opened the door because I didn't think ahead enough to know that this was the game they were going to be able to play. But is that how far ahead I have to be thinking at all times as a parent? And that's a tremendous amount of constant vigilance and hypervigilance that I think white parents don't have to navigate. And yeah, so for us to be able to have places where this is talked about really openly and also for white parents to have an awareness around this too, I think is really, really significant. I was just thinking this morning, there was a news story about a politician who apparently accidentally packed a gun in his carry-on bag on a plane. And I don't know if he turned himself in. I don't know exactly what happened, but he was arrested when he landed. And in reading the story, I was like, this is probably going to just go away. And it's a white guy. And I yeah. thought, what if a black man accidentally brought a gun in his carry-on on a plane and it wasn't discovered till he was getting off the plane? I mean, the difference between that and the white politician, it's a totally different news story. And it totally. would be picked up by totally different media outlets and be of a totally different scale. And <clears throat> if he were a black politician, he wouldn't get any grace. Yeah, right. Sure. So I think that this awareness, it's in our, it's around parenting and child rearing, but it goes up stream from there as well. And I think that it's really important that we're thinking in all those layers at all those levels too. I want to talk a little bit about allyship before we wrap here. White shameless moms listening today, be more assertive, if not aggressive in their allyship. And 
what does visible allyship feel like for Black parents and kids? I think sometimes allyship can feel really uncomfortable for white people if it's new or they're using their voice in new ways. And maybe if they knew how it was being received, it would there would be more openness to that discomfort. One of the easy ways to do it is school. I mean, almost, you know, most folks send their kids <laughs> to school, obviously people homeschool, but for the parents who send their children to school, whether it's local, public, private, what have you, lean into uncomfortable spaces, lean into affinity groups, for African-American children or African-American parents or people raising Black children. Join. We'll be happy to have you. Show up. If your school has a DEI, you know, belonging, whatever it may be along those lines, show up. Go to the meetings, read the books. If there's a book club and don't be afraid to say, you know, I read this. This was my takeaway And, you know, maybe I missed it, you know, please, please tell me what was your takeaway. And then so I can meet you in the middle, even if I don't see it, but help me get there. We'd be happy to have you happy to have that support. If you're in a school or sports environment where there aren't any, there's no diversity, like that's a problem. Um, My daughter's playing basketball for the first time. And we played a couple of schools and we have brought the diversity. We don't have a black team by any stretch, but we have a very racial, we have white girls and Indians and biracial kids. We have everything. Mm -hmm. And we've gone to three schools. We were the diversity. That was it. Mm -hmm. And that was ridiculous. And as a parent, you have a voice to say to the coach, hey, where are you recruiting? Yeah. And and why is it that this looks so homogenous? Like that's Mm -hmm. a problem. That's definitely some um, visible allyship to actively search for. If it's not in your community, you're going to have to go out of your way. Mm -hmm. Go find them and bring them into your community. And then be willing to go to Dia de los Muertos. Like I know last couple of weekends, those things, you know, show up and learn about someone else's culture. And another way for writers, because of course, that's what I do, is Mm -hmm. buy our books, support us. That's a way to support us financially, because at the end of the day, you know, publisher wants to make money, you know, we know that. So if you push our book to the New York Times bestsellers list, or, you know, these other bestsellers list, then publishers have to take notice. And that means the people coming behind me, I think there were, you know, maybe eight or 10 books that came out after mine about black motherhood. But if you've been to the bookstore, or you go on Amazon, the parenting section, so so if there's 10 of us, if there's 15 diverse mom books. That's not a lot. That's like nothing. So, you know, walk the talk, put your money where you say, you know, your allyship is. And that's definitely a way to be supportive. Children, when you talk with your own kids, I'm always telling mine, go sit with so-and-so. Go, go, Mm -hmm. go, you know, go check on her, go check on him. You know, what's going on? You can be friends with everyone. And if we're going to have a play date, like open it up beyond your social, economic, and beyond your race or beyond your religion. Uh, We have a Girl Scout troop. Our Girl Scout troop is super diverse because we were intentional about let's bring in, you know, all this wonderful diversity that we have. Let's do that and make it fun. So those are some active ways that white people can show allyship and and be co-conspirators, especially in the educational space. If you look at the reading list and the reading list doesn't have any diverse voices on it, any window books, say something. 
if your child comes home and says, uh, oh, I noticed that, you know, Stephanie always gets in trouble, but Brooke doesn't mm-hmm. investigate that. You know, my child is saying this is happening. What's that about? Because the white parent is going to get a different answer than the black parent. Because I definitely yep. was on the receiving end of that when my son was in kindergarten and first grade. Like, why mm-hmm. am I getting emailed and this child is not? This child's family yeah. is. Because we're friends and we talk. So mm-hmm. I already know mine's in trouble, but hers isn't. What's that about? Yeah. Uh, lots of good pointers in there. <laughs> lots of important takeaways. I appreciate that. And I think it's really helpful to know where there's a layer of permission to show up. And I good example of this, a good friend of mine does a lot of work in LGBTQ plus advocacy. Yes. And we were at an event together, a big like conference event, and there was an LGBTQ plus like happy hour or something for a specific affinity group. And she was like, well, are you going to go? And I was like, well, it's not for me though. She was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> She's like, this is the problem. Yes, <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I'll go. I thought I wasn't invited. And yeah. so I've noticed, especially in that conference environment, but in where there's affinity groups and different places, if it's going to be explicitly for, because there's obviously places where we want safe, safe sure. spaces that are just for black women or just for this group or that group, but they'll identify like if no one else is invited they'll let people know but yes. otherwise it's often like this is how you can show allyship by being the white person or the straight person or the whatever to show up and be like here to listen and learn not to go in and grandstand and be like i have some things to share but just <laughs> right. to go listen and learn and make re- and build relationships in an authentic way yes absolutely that's that's right oh my goodness Nefertiti, this has been so fantastic. I'm so grateful for your time today and for your work in the world. Can you tell us how you're currently showing up as a shameless mom? I am showing up as a shameless mom <laughs> on Instagram at I am Nefertiti Austin, at X, formerly known as Twitter, at Nefertiti Austin. And my Facebook and IG accounts are linked. So probably look for me on IG. And I do respond if you send me a note. I <laughs> will respond. And that's where I'm in the internet as a shameless mom. Perfect. And then do you want to point anyone to a a website or just to social for now? My website is www.nefertitiaustin.com. And that of almost everything on the website. Okay. And then we'll link the book up as well. If people want a quick, quick link to get the book, and we'll put everything in the show notes here. So if people go to shamelessmom.com, click on the episode with Nefertiti Austin, um, and we'll link through to everything so that people can get easy access and grab the book. So the book, the book Motherhood So White, a memoir of race, gender and parenting in America can be found wherever you get books. And then do you have you don't know yet an estimated time for the second book? Do you No, because it depends on how and when it gets picked up. It hasn't been sold yet. So okay. Hopefully soon. So when you do have a timeline for that book, please come back and talk about that book. And we'll dig into that a little bit more because I would love to help you promote that. And that's a really, you know, really digging into neurodiversity is something that we love digging into here. So we'll be eagerly awaiting that conversation. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate the offer. Thanks. Thank you so much for being here in Nefertiti. I really appreciate you. And I'm so grateful that you were able to join us today. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash 
Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be shameless mom of the week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media. Tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.